0: Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 1, that's where we're going to start. Um, I've been studying this book pretty intently for probably five or six weeks now, and I was telling Daniel I rewrote this message this morning, or not this morning, but this week probably four times. Got basically the same content in all of them. I just took different approaches for them. Judges is a narrative, it is a story. And as we walk through this, I do not want us to miss um, that important piece of this book. It is a story, it is a story of God, it is a story that He is inviting us into so we'll be looking at some larger sections of Scripture. We'll look at chapter 1 and chapter 2 this week, this morning, this afternoon. Um, I'll not read every verse. I'll not expound on every verse like we did through Ephesians. But the story is what I want us to see. And so let me encourage you to be reading this book. Be reading Judges on Your Own. Spend time uh, with the Lord in His Word. This is a difficult book to read, especially as we get into some of the later chapters. There are some tragic and horrific events described and detailed in this book. But I think all the way through, what we will see is a hope, and ultimately that hope comes in the person of Christ. If you found Judges chapter one, I'm just going to read the first three or four verses. If you would stand as we open the word of the Lord together. Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I think I'm going to read down through verse 3 or 4. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the vulnerability of your word. We thank you that as we read it and we read difficult passages, passages that create conflict in our own spirits, passages that create sometimes even confusion, that Father, you would guide our hearts and guide our thoughts That we can see the work you're doing as we walk through this passage today and this book over the coming weeks. Ultimately, I pray, Father, that we would see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story over the next few weeks. It's a story of victory and it's a story of tragedy, a story of judgment and deliverance, a story of mystery and sex and civil war and murder. But it doesn't begin in Judges, it begins in Genesis, in the beginning, God. When we see the Bible as God's redemptive story, we find about seven major movements. The first one is God created. God created everything from nothing. God created at the sound of His thunderous voice. God said, Those are the most powerful words in all of human history. God said. So we start in the beginning with creation and a fall and a call and a covenant. God created. Man fell into sin. God called a man to build a family in Abraham and God covenanted with him to build a nation that would bless the world and provide a redeemer. But man continued in sin. They found themselves in captivity. That leads us to the second part of this story and that is freedom. God's People were in Egypt enslaved for 400 years. Moses and then Joshua led them from slavery to the promised land, a land of freedom, a land of hope, but a land filled with depravity and idolatry. God commanded his people how to inhabit that land. To not only find God's blessings for them, but to provide God's judgments on His enemies. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Incredibly important to this story. God says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergashites." The Amorites and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous, mightier than you, and when your God when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their asherims, which are idols and burned their carved images with fire. When God told Moses to go into the land, that's what he told him to do. People failed. Yet again. Instead of driving out the Canaanites, they became Canaanites. Instead of establishing the worship of Yahweh, the God of Moses, the God of the covenant, they were absorbed into the worship of the Baals and the Asheroths of the Canaanite people. So we find a third ethic of this redemptive history. And it is a time of the kings. David, surely David would be a righteous leader, a deliverer. Surely David would be the savior that they were looking for. And indeed, in spite of his abhorrent failures, he was the standard. David at least understood the necessity of repentance. Psalm 51, he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Watch me thoroughly for my iniquity. Lord... Cleanse me from my sin. But the kingdom would not stand. As it divided, it rejected, and even killed the prophets of God, the kingship rule would fall and lead yet again to exile. And then we find the fourth era. The return to Jerusalem. Seventy years in captivity. Rebuilding the temple. Rebuilding the city. Rebuilding the walls. Rebuilding their homes. Rebuilding the priesthood. Rebuilding worship. Surely now. But no. The Old Testament closes. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall not go out leaping or you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under your souls on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, the prophet continues, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Then the fifth movement. 400 years of silence. The prophecy of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, comes to pass. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. 400 years of silence. And then the sixth epic. A voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the paths straight. Then came an angel. Then came a pregnancy. Then came a child. A son. The son. When we open up the words of Judges, we find ourselves in this story, right in the thick of it, Right in the mess of it, in the deepest levels of depravity of it. But we see a people and we find ourselves in hope of a redeemer, a savior, a king, a judge, a deliverer, a hope. When we come to Judges, that God had freed the people from the slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years so that all that generation died, leaving really one only adult generation. They battled for years under Joshua as they entered Canaan, and they began to take the land, but now Joshua is dead. They've been here before, though. Joshua chapter 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, The Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to all the people. But Joshua left no assistant. Indeed, Joshua and his generation of leaders left no one. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says all that generation when they were gathered to their fathers, the generation of Joshua, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. A whole generation. It's easy to blame Joshua and Joshua's generation for a lack of passing the truth to the next generation but the wording the wording of this text and this verse is that is more indicative that the next generation rejected God's covenantial relationship with them. They knew the works of the Lord, they heard of the Lord, but they rejected the Lord. And so this story opens with God's promise of victory, not through a person but through a tribe. The tribe of Judah the text I read a few moments ago after the death of Joshua the people of Israel inquired of the Lord who will go first to fight for us against the Canaanites to fight against them and the Lord said "Judah shall go behold I have given the land into his hand a promise Judah you will fight and you will win however instead of taking God as his word. And battling this enemy by faith, Judah, the tribe, enlisted the assistance of their brother, tribe. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, we're not talking about people, we're talking about tribes here. Judah said to Simeon, come with me. Come with me to the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And then I'll go to your territory. That's allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. Oh, they won. At least they won that battle. But they lost in disobeying God. From the opening sentences of this story, we begin to see this pattern of disobedience. Judges chapter 1, verse 4 says they killed 10,000 Canaanites and Perizzites. Sounds like a resounding victory, right? Except their king escaped. Adonai Bezek fled. Had the Judaites and had the Simeonites, the people of God, been obedient to God then verse 6 would have read something like this. They pursued him and caught him and killed Adonai Abedzek with the edge of the sword. But that's not what it reads. It reads, they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and cut off his big toes. Sounds weird, doesn't it? the form of both mutilation and humiliation. Indeed, it was something that King Adonai Bezak had done himself at least 70 times. He says 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. A sign of fleshly superiority. Every story has a plot. It has a storyline that the characters follow. They follow it through the trials and the tragedies. They follow it through the pains and the victories until the end of the story where the heroes are heroes and the villains are vanquished. Judges chapter 1, verse 7. At the end of this verse, a pagan king, not a prophet, not a Jewish tribal leader, not a tabernacle priest. As a matter of fact, the tabernacle is never mentioned one time in all of Judges. But a pagan king gives us the plot line. The end of verse 7, the last few words. Adonai, Bizzak, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. The wicked king understood the true nature of God's justice, yet, God's own people rejected it. They did not kill the king, they took him home with them. And it appears that he lived in Jerusalem until he died, however long that took. There are a few victories. There are a few victories for God's people right at the beginning of these battles. But it's not long into the story until we find this list of disobedient defeats. Look with me starting in verse 27 you know how to pronounce these names, just shout them out. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshem and its villages, or Tanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kidron, or the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or Sidon or Ahalab or Halab or, or Helbach or Afik or Rehob, So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites for they did not drive them out of the land. Verse 33. Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor. Verse 34. The Amorites, the enemy of God, pressed the people of Dan, the tribe of God, back into the hill country. For they did not allow them to come down to the plains. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Hares and Ajalon and in Shalabim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Acrobin to Selah and upward. God's people did not drive out the pagan people of the land as they were commanded to back in Deuteronomy 7, we read a few moments ago. The people of God were to be the judge that God used against the sinful Canaanites. His people were just not faithful to Him. They could have. The text is clear. They could have. You see several times in this list that God's people made their enemies subject to forced labor. If they had the power to enslave them, they had the power to destroy them. They just chose not to. And it got so bad that finally God's people From the tribe of Dan were actually enslaved by the Amorite pagans. What a tragedy. What would create such a despairing situation for God's chosen people? We find it in chapter 2, the first three verses. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said to the Israelite people, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. God says, I did what I said I would do. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. The covenant God who freed them from slavery, brought them to the promised land, fed them, sustained them, disciplined them for decades says his people have not obeyed my voice. Let's see what they did do. Look at verse 11. The people of Israel notice the verbs here especially the ones that start with the subject being they the they is the people of Israel. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people of Israel served the Baals. They, the people of Israel, abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around him. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. So What was God's response? Look at verse fourteen. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hand of the surrounding Israelites, of surrounding enemies. So what happened to the Israelites? Picking up at the end of verse 14, they could no longer withstand their enemies. They, when they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in to terrible distress. One author writes of this passage, it was not simply a memory loss that the Israelites suffered. And forgetting Yahweh and his great deeds. Neither was it merely an inadvertent strain from the straight and narrow. Rather, it was a deliberate going after other gods and worshiping them. This is treason. We find a transition in verse 16 the Lord raised up judges, saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Beginning next week, we'll meet the first of these judges whose stories are sad and horrific, (coughs) but demonstrate God's incredible grace in the face of great evil. So we have to ask why. Maybe more importantly, we ask what What does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with our church? What does this have to do with you and me in this room right now? Remember the storyline we started with? Creation, Exodus, Kings, Exile, Silence, Son. son. I want to make a connection here. We you look at Judges chapter 3 for a moment, I want us to read the first six verses. We'll come back to these because there's other things in here I want to point out. Judges chapter 3, the first six verses. The Bible reads, now these are the nations the Lord left to test Israel. that is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan it was only in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war to teach war to them who had not known it before these are the nations the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites the Sidonites and the Hivites, who who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon as far as Lebo, Hamath They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their father by the hand of Moses, so that the people of Israel, living among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, their own daughters they gave gave to their sons, and they served the other gods. God left these nations to test His people. This is not new for God. There are several other places that we could go, but Genesis chapter 22, God tested Abraham by telling him to take his son to the mountain and sacrifice him on the altar. Genesis chapter 44, Joseph tested his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and now they were asking for provisions during a famine. Exodus chapter 16, God tested his people with bread from heaven to see if they were faithful to the law of God. It had happened before, it would happen again. And I want us to look at one of those events where it happens in the future for these people. Recorded in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 read The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels ministered to him. When the Hebrew is translated, when the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew to Greek, the word, in, Genesis, the word in, in Judges chapter 3 that's translated tested, when it's translated to Greek, it's the exact same word that Mark used when he said that Satan tempted Jesus. We could say that in the wilderness, Jesus was tested. The Old Testament people failed their test over and over and over and over again. Judges chapter 2 again, verse 17. They did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who uh, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. They failed the test. Jesus did not fail. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, the Bible says that Jesus in every respect has been tempted, has been tested just like we are yet without sin. I told you there were seven major movements in this biblical story. The beginnings, the exodus, the kings, the exile, silence, the sun. There's one more. Revelation chapter 5. Between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw the Lamb stand as though he had been slain with seven horns, all the power, seven eyes, all the wisdom, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. There is an eternity that is waiting. And beloved, until eternity is our home, our faith is tested every day. Every day when we get up, every day when we watch something online, every day when we watch a video or post something on social media, it's tested every day in our relationships with our husbands, our wives, our children, children, it's tested every day when when temptation is staring us in the eyes. It's tested when we get angry or sad, when we get busy or bored. It's tested when we feel like we've lost control of everything. Or we have full control of everything. Beloved church, Jesus passed the test. The book of Judges is looking for a Savior. They don't know it yet. but That Savior is Jesus. But you and I, we know or at least we've heard, Jesus died for our sin. The sinless one, the one who knew no sin, became sin, and died because of us, and rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated every idol, every false god, closing the mouths of every false prophet. King Adonai, the pagan that he was, got it right. Judgment is the just repayment for sin. When we reject Jesus, we face that payment. And it is death. Eternal death. Death in a very real place a much worse place than the people of Judges ever would face, a very real place called hell. And I urge us, I urge you, hear the voice of our covenant God as He draws us to His Son Jesus. Repent, believe, utterly destroy, drive out, the idols of your life. Tear down the pagan temples of our heart. Surrender to the Savior. My goal is not to scare you or dissuade you. But the journey we are on, the journey to plant a faithful, biblical, worshiping, disciple-making church, It's going to be long and it's going to be hard. We will be tempted and we will be tested over and over again to forget God and embrace the ways of the world. We'll be tempted to put the Bible down and abandon the covenant of God and pick up the pagan practices of the gods of this world. I pray, I pray as we study Judges, it encourages us and it strengthens us and it unifies us in the Lord Jesus Christ to stay faithful. A mighty fortress is our God. I'm going to close this morning by reading Psalm 46. Psalm 46. 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come. Come. Behold the work of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars seize to to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Daniel's going to introduce us to a new song, perhaps to you.